Welcome to Hollowed Ground Storycast. I'm Alan. And I'm Anya. And I'm Poetry. And this episode is about the book series that inspired me to write a 600,000-word fanfiction series, the Animorph series by Catherine Applegate and Michael Grant. And we'll particularly be focusing on book number 19, The Departure. How can I go around doing the things I do and still believe that life is sacred? That every life is sacred? Sometimes I'm a predator, sometimes I'm prey. So today we are thrilled to introduce this episode's guest, Poetry. Poetry is a known Animorphs person on the internet. They are best known for their Demorphine series, which is an Animorphs His Dark Materials fusion that is 600,000 words and counting. Um, so still, I guess, technically a work in progress. <laughs> yep. I was just working on it yesterday, in fact. Nice. Um, so why don't you summarize like the Animorphs series in general and then um, give us a plot summary for book 19? Overall, it's about a vast interplanetary war between these two species, the Andalites, who are these blue scorpion centaur aliens, and the Yurks, who are these aliens who are parasitic slugs that can infest the brains of other species. The main characters are the titular Animorphs. They're five human kids who were given this morphing technology that lets them turn into animals by the dying Andalite warrior Elfangor, plus Elfangor's little brother Aximili, who is the sixth Animorph. Together, the Animorphs use their ability to morph into animals to conduct this secret guerrilla war against the Yurk Empire that wants to enslave humanity and take our brains. In Book 19, The Departure, the story gets a lot more complicated than what I just presented to you. One of the Animorphs, Cassie, becomes tired of the violence and trauma of this war that she's secretly fighting after school, along with the other human kids, and she leaves the Animorphs. She gets stranded in the woods through a series of weird accidents with Aftran942, who is a yerk, one of these parasitic slugs, who is infesting a little girl named Karen. Lost and alone together in the woods, Cassie and Aftran grow to understand each other, and Cassie realizes that yerks are people, and they're not just evil brain slugs. In the end, Cassie convinces Aftran to give up her host, Karen, and let her go free. Cassie rejoins the Animorphs in the war, powered on by this hope that one day humans can make peace with the Yerks and coexist without slavery and violence. Damn, that's like pretty heavy for a kids book series. <laughs> yeah, sure is. The main series of Animorphs is 54 books long. If you include all of the side stories, it's 62 books. The books in the main series rotate narration among the six Animorphs while the side stories break out of this pattern. They often focus on particular aliens in the series. Uh, Animorphs was actually written by a husband and wife team, Catherine Applegate and Michael Grant, and in a reversal of hundreds of years of literary history, only the wife got the credit, which <laughs> amuses me a lot. <laughs> the duo got an abysmally bad writing contract from Scholastic. They were contractually obligated to write a book a month for four years, even while they had a newborn baby. These impossible conditions meant they needed to have some of the later books ghostwritten, based on their outlines. Scholastic also got full creative control over any adaptations of the books. So basically, the Animorphs TV show that was made had no involvement whatsoever from Applegate and Grant. Uh, Animorphs was popular enough that Apple Grant, that's what I often call them for short, <laughs> what the fandom calls them for short, Apple Grant should have made bank, but their bad contract meant they did not, unfortunately. That really sucks, you know? 
Just, yeah, the fact that J.K. Rowling ended up being, like, what, the first female billionaire or something, and and Apple Graham basically got nothing, that's, that just seems horrible. And they had to do it all on, like, no sleep with a newborn baby. They got the opposite of what they deserved. J.K. Rowling deserved to have to churn out a book a month, and Apple Grant deserved to be billionaires, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, like a lot of children's fiction traditionally didn't even have a real author. It was like a invented persona. Mm. I see. Yeah. Babysitter's yeah. Club, all of that. Exactly. Yeah. And they would they weren't like a real author. It was like, you know, a team of like six people who were on a rotation ghostwriting stuff to churn out every month. And they didn't get any residuals. They just had like a contract that basically said, we will consider you in the future for like your own project, which I think actually is how Apple Grant like got into this position yes, in the first place. I believe place. So Catherine yeah. Applegate was a, was a writer for Boxcar Children. I right, right. Exactly. Oh, wow. That's, that's so interesting. I had no idea. I was super into Boxcar Children when I was like very, very young. Mm-hmm. This way of writing is like really like comic books. That's, yeah, like, I was it, actually it's about to say thing. the same thing. It's like yeah. Marvel owns Spider-Man and then, yep. but at least the people who, you know, write an issue or a run of comic books get their name on it, you know? Yeah, I think Scholastic's pretty much running the same way. They like hold the schools hostage for money and then pay their writers nothing <laughs> if they can afford to, so... Yeah, this is what most writers get terrible contracts like this with promises of like, in the future, you know, if these are successful, we'll we'll get a better deal for you. And it's like it never happens. I mean, to be fair, Applegate and Grant have had very successful careers post Animorphs. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they should have gotten the full like good contract at the time for Animorphs. But Catherine Applegate has really made a name for herself in children's literature, like not middle grade like Animorphs, but like, you know, younger children's books yeah. since Animorphs. And Michael Grant has written several popular young adult books, some of which I greatly enjoy. Oh, that's awesome. Well, that that makes me feel less bad about it. I'm, ha- I'm happy for them. <laughs> yeah. So, Poetry, tell us a little bit about your first experience with Animorphs. Uh, so I had the classic first experience with Animorphs, which was that my school had a scholastic book fair. Uh, for those right. who are not familiar, <laughs> um, in the United States in the 1990s, it was very common to have these scholastic book fairs, which was when... Scholastic would come around to elementary schools and set up in the gymnasium or something all of these different shelves with books aimed at, you know, the appropriate age groups. And then you'd uh, go around with your allowance from your parents or, or whatever and, uh, and buy books. Uh, so I went to a Scholastic book fair when I was seven years old and... I saw on one of the the shelves the um, book 17, The Underground, which has one of those classic and or psychedelic covers, (laughs) which which many people on the internet know and love. Um, It was of Rachel, uh, this blonde girl turning into a bat. And I just thought, wow, I need to read a book about a girl who turns into a bat. Uh, So I I got that book. And from then I was completely hooked. I was absolutely hooked. I, um, you know, I saved up my allowance and just spent it every month getting the next Animorphs book. That's awesome. You know, I think I may have gotten my first exposure to Animorphs also at a Scholastic Book Fair. I guess I was reading a lot of different things, and so I didn't quite get hooked the way you did. Um, I really enjoyed the first few, but then I think I kind of lost interest in the mid-single digits. 
Um, I guess maybe like war stories wasn't like really my thing at that time. I've remembered so little about the books that I almost don't even feel like that counts as my first experience with Animorphs. <laughs> I remembered basically book one, and that was about it. And so revisiting them for this podcast episode was super fun. Um, and I was really surprised by how well they hold up. Like, to me, they didn't really feel like kids' books in, like, the way that I guess I was kind of expecting them to just be, like, a little bit shallow or feel, you know, kind of like Power Rangers where it's just, like, there's a gimmick and it repeats every book, you know? I guess the parts of it that feel kind of like, you know, kids lit are the ages of the protagonist, the length of the book, they're pretty short, and the romantic relationship is very, like, middle school, low-key, where they basically just hold hands and kind of like each other, um, but, you mm -hmm. know, like, try to keep it a secret. Um, but the, the characters themselves are, they're really complicated, they're really well-drawn, they change over time, and honestly, they feel much more high school than middle school to me. The fact that the stories were so short didn't bother me at all. The serialized nature of the story, it just made it feel kind of like an episodic TV show or like a series of short stories rather than novels. You want the kid to finish it and feel like, wow, I read a book. And it's mm -hmm. like, but it's it wasn't too, too much, especially if you're talking about this would be like called science fantasy or, you know, some weird subgenre like that where usually there's like so much scaffolding and world building. I think that Applegate does a fantastic job of like laying down the rules of this world and then just really focusing on the interiority of the characters, like you said, and keeping that like very real. I think that's why this spoke to so many kids, mm -hmm. you know. So what was your first experience with this? Alan, was this your first time or had you encountered Animorphs before? I think that I was vaguely aware that of the Animorphs TV show, which I assumed oh, was God. PBS ripping off Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. And I was like, that's funny. I like that we both have made Power Rangers references at this point in the show. I would be willing to bet that the Morphin part of the title oh, might yeah. be related. That's like how, yeah, that's where our brain is like subconsciously making that connection. Well, and also to me, like Animorphs feels like a deconstruction of Power Rangers because the whole exactly. premise of Power Rangers yes. is like, these kids are like fighting a war after school against aliens. How fun. And mm -hmm. Animorphs is saying, actually, fighting, if kids actually fought a war against aliens after school, it would destroy them psychologically. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought when I read it, too, because the premise is almost exactly the same. I can just imagine, you know, somebody in Scholastic being like, what's hot with kids right now? Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, you know, Morphin, let's let's morph something. What can we morph? Uh, and it has like this edutainment kind of thing going on of like, yeah, here are animal facts in every book, you know. Except sometimes the animal facts are wrong. <laughs> yeah, which is great. Um but to answer your question, yeah, I didn't I didn't read this stuff. Uh, when this was coming out, I'm pretty sure that I was um, at the end of high school. I, I've heard about them for years, though, from people that I admire who are younger than me, but are like very creative and very smart. And they cite these books as a primary influence on their style and uh, meditation on their themes and stuff like that. 
I only read this one book, but then I listened to a podcast that covered the entire series book by book for about an hour and a half per book. So I know everything that happened, or <laughs> I think I do, uh, at least what they said happened. <laughs> Was this Morph Club? Morph Club's pretty reliable. Morph Club. Yes, they're great. Um, and a lot of fun to listen to. Very smart. You know, this reminded me of, we were getting ready for it, is, um, is kind of uh, like moonlighting when we talked to Lonnie about that mm-hmm. and how moonlighting was this thing where like all the producers were like, shit, we have to put something in this time slot. Let's put <laughs> this loser on here with these nobodies. And like, you know, if it flops, it's a tax write off. If anybody watches it, it's a win. Who cares? And this is like a scholastic writing contract. We'll milk these people for four years, a book a month. If they can't do it, great for us because they defaulted on the contract. We don't have to pay them. And if anybody reads it, that's also good for us. Win-win, right? So you get this terrible contract. And it's kind of like nobody's watching, you know? Like like the contract is like set up in a way to be this like double jeopardy situation for the creator. And so they just go all in. And they're just like write their ass off and do their thing. And then people are like, have you seen this thing? Like, it's crazy. And I think that's kind of what Animorphs is. You know, it's like you said, it's like way more serious than you think it should be. And it's like deconstructing the genre that it is in a way that's like way more sophisticated than you would ever guess. And I think that that speaks to like kids are not dumb, mm-hmm. you know, like it uh, It spoke to a lot of people, obviously. Mm-hmm. Like, if you look at it objectively, it looks like one of those, like, carefully constructed diversity things, right? Like, it's a mix of Mm. boys and girls, and there's, you know, like, it's racially diverse. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's kind of, you know, and because the narrators take turns, or the characters take turns narrating different books, it's like, you can kind of, you know, have your favorite one who you identify with the most. Like Captain Planet or something. Yeah. Yeah. But it feels a lot more genuine than that, you know, like in mm-hmm. in the way that it's enacted. It doesn't feel like a cynical, empty ploy at like, it doesn't feel like superficial diversity, you know? Like Captain and, Planet, yeah. And especially <laughs> at a time where, <laughs> well, I didn't have Cartoon Network, so I don't know. <laughs> oh. um, it just seems like at a time when so much of kids lit is really segregated, like boys lit with boy characters for boys to read and girls lit for with girl characters for girls to read. This is like a very genuine and compelling mix. And, you know, like it showed like, oh, gas boys and girls can be friends together. <laughs> you know? Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. You're right about that. I hadn't thought of that that way, but yeah, this isn't like the babysitters club, right? Versus yeah. The hardy yeah, boys, yeah, yeah. you know? Mm. Right. I mean, I'm, obviously I'm here because I love this series. I don't want to give Apple Grant more credit than they deserve on the racial diversity. It is kind of classic nineties tokenism. I mean, I'm, I'm Latina myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and Marco is, I was reading books in Spanish as well growing up, so obviously I was, you know, reading about Latina protagonists, but Marco was the first, was the first character in an English language book I had read, who was also Latina, but, and that, 
meant something to me, but also, like, it was very superficial, right? So, uh, it's like, I mean, like, there's a, there's a couple of mentions of it. Like, in Book 11, he speaks a little bit of Spanish. In Book 21, he mentions his mother passing um, her citizenship exam, that sort of thing. But it's very rare that it's really brought up at all. Um, Rachel and Jake, two of the characters, are Jewish, but it's only brought up in the one book where they time travel back to World War II, which makes me cringe because Judaism is pretty much always brought up solely in the context of the Holocaust. And Manuel yeah. says exactly that, and it's just like, oh, cringe. I'm also Jewish, to be clear. Um, and, you know, and, and Cassie's blackness, I mean, it's, it's not like it's never mentioned, but it's not... It's not really delved into particularly much. Again, it's mostly brought up in the time travel book, which, again, is pretty, pretty cringe uh, in a particular way. Um, so I don't, I don't want to give them too much credit. At the same time, I mean, Cassie to me feels like an incredibly subversive black protagonist, right? Like, I mean, I'm not black, so I don't want to step out of my lane. But when I hear my my black friends of my age talk about how they had no books growing up that had, you know, black heroes who were complex. I just want to be like, but didn't you read Animorphs? Because <laughs> Cassie is this, mm. like, amazing... I mean, I feel like... I mean, Cassie is this like, really, really complex and wonderful black protagonist. She's the protagonist of Book 19, which we all read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I. you're right. Maybe I am giving them a little bit too much credit. I guess um, the gender mix scene more felt more like I was really impressed with that. That didn't feel like tokenism at all. Like it felt like they Mm. were genuinely friends and like working together in a way that um, you don't see a lot in kids let. Yeah. I, I agree with you. Like, especially around this time, like it's, you know, books that were aimed at kids, you know, it's not like they were trying to um, reinforce that whole cultural thing, but trying to like stay within the lanes of the capitalism rules of it, right? To be like, we want to sell to this female audience. So these babysitter club books are pink with girls in pink sweaters on the cover (laughs) and they have white girl names and white girls and they're for girls, see? And they're taking care of children. Babies. Engaging in their maternal instincts right (laughs) all that stuff so i don't think animorphs is doing that but i think part of it you know like part of it is probably that whole you know deconstructing the genre thing but it's i think it's also because nobody was looking at this thing the way that they were those babysitter club books you know in the in the publishing arm of it i don't think Mm -hmm. um they were just like yeah whatever Talking about breaking the capitalist rules. I mean, like these these books are outright anti-imperialist. Like they're yeah, they're very clearly so, and anti-U.S. imperialism in particular. So to me, the mm-hmm. uh, the Andalites, these um, sort of blue scorpion centaur aliens um, in these books, are very much a metaphor for U.S. imperialism. In the beginning yeah. of the series, the, the Andalites are presented as the heroes. The the Animorphs meet this dying Andalite warrior who gives them the power to, to morph. And, you know, he gives them this whole speech about how, you know, the Yurks are taking over your planet and the Andalites are only people who are going are gonna to fight them. Um, and then over the course of the series, you learn that the Andalites are dicks and they're horrible. 
like you learn in uh, <laughs> like you learn in in set like you learn in um, the Hork Bajir Chronicles that the Andalites committed committed genocide against one of the species they were supposedly trying to save from the Yurks. So they decided, you know, we can't save this species, so we're just going to kill them all, so the Yurks can't take them. Oh, so right. they did that, and so like these supposed heroes are <laughs> just genocidal. And then toward the and like the, to me, what's also really subversive is you know throughout the series. These kids are waiting for the Andalites to come save them. They're like, we're just holding off the Yerks until the Andalites can come and they'll rescue us. I mean, in a way, this is a very Vietnam War kind of situation where the, you know, the, um, the Animorphs are kind of in the position of, of guerrilla fighters like the Viet Cong. Uh, and then the, the Andalites come at the end of the series and they've come to genocide humanity so that the Yerks don't take them. So right. they're not the heroes. They are not the cavalry. They've come to make things even worse. It's, and it's a very subversive message where it's like the people who you think are the heroes, they're actually genocidal imperialists and they're not, they're not heroes. And an invading army is not actually going to come and save the day. Like an invading army is always a bad thing, even if you think they're the heroes. Mm-hmm. Right. And it like troubles the idea of like a moral war or something like that. You know, like these kids are in a position where they have to, they feel like they have to fight for their existence on earth. And it's like, but these are the moral good guys, you know, who are out there also fighting the same fight we are. And then it, you know, and even one of their number is an Andalite. And then, you know, when it comes down to it, like you said, you find out that they are actually going to destroy them too. And so like the, there is no good war in these books, like ever. Yes. So I was going to talk about this later, but since you already brought up the ending of this series, maybe we should just talk about it now. That ending is or was somewhat controversial in the in the fandom. And like, I don't, was just wondering if you wanted to talk about that at all poetry. Yeah, absolutely. I remember very keenly when that book came out um, and it was emotionally devastating to me. So one of the six Animorphs, Rachel, dies in the end, in the, in the war. And the Animorphs who survive, their outcomes are very mixed. It's not a triumphant, like, you know, we're the heroes and we're famous now and blah, blah, blah. It, it's very complicated. Jake, the leader of the Animorphs, gets severe PTSD and depression um, after the war. And you just see him suffering horrifically and making really bad choices. Um, and... Marco, another one of the Animorphs, he's always wanted to become famous, and he does, which is typically presented as a triumphant ending in, uh, in a children's book, but it's actually shown to be very empty and hollow, and he's not very happy with this outcome of becoming this, you know, Hollywood famous star. You know, Tobias becomes a hermit, basically just completely retreats from society and doesn't interact with anybody, so he's also just very mentally ill. Uh, you know, like, Axe seems to be okay, but and Cassie is um, basically takes up a new fight. I mean, she becomes like a politician and starts fighting for the rights of aliens on Earth. It's it's like the fight is never over for any of them, really. Because Axe mm-hmm. also goes on to fight more wars, and like they, none of them actually get to get to have that like close the book and just like retire to Hobbiton or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very upsetting. Like I cried a lot, and it was like a it was like super hard to read, and yet at the same time. Like, I felt very respected as a reader. Like, I felt like I was being taken seriously. 
even though it was it was really difficult for me to read, like I was used to books I read being tied up very neatly, and I felt like the fact that it was messy. I, I mean, I felt the respect. And in fact, uh, Catherine Applegate wrote um, a letter to fans after the last book came out because she saw how many kids were really upset by the ending. And she basically wrote a letter to her readers saying like, hey, I'm, I'm sorry that this, that this ending was really sad, um, but I want you to know that this is what real wars are like. And if you found this ending upsetting, then when you turn 18, vote and make sure that a war like this never happens. If you don't like that this happened to the Animorphs, make sure it doesn't happen to anyone you know. Mm -hmm. Which is just such a powerful thing to tell kids. Like, if you don't like this ending, you change it. Yeah. yeah, it's like, she didn't back down from her convictions, and she's telling people, like, empowering them to try to make a difference. The very final moments were, like, very surprising to me that they talked about, and I don't know if we want to spoil them, but, uh, you know, and like I said, I didn't read the, the book. I, I listened to the Morph Club podcast about it, but it's, like, clear to me in in that ending, she's, like, really pushing that allegory of like the war will never let go of you. Like it doesn't matter what happens after you carry the trauma with you forever. War is trauma that unrolls on history and never stops hurting people until you like, as a society, you face it. And that's like what these books are at their core, you know, in terms of like, the relationships of the kids are extremely important to each other, but they're all situated in this in this war. And it's the thing that is tearing them apart. Like it's not what gives them definition or like a purpose or any of that. It's the thing that is destroying them, even though they don't totally understand that. And I think Cassie wakes up to that the most by the end. Yeah. But I think it it does like it consumes Rachel. It destroys Jake. It destroys Tobias. Like it, yeah, it's awful. Uh, which I, you know, like that, that sucks for people who think they're getting into something for entertainment purposes. But I love, like, that's what writing is. I think it's, that's a lot of integrity that she has, like you said, Anya, um, to, to not flinch from that ending and to really stick it. Yeah, I mean, she perpetually confronts, like, the typical black-and-white morality of of children's literature, not just in this way of, like, challenging, you know, whether there can be moral war, but also just, um, like, in terms of, you know, who is a hero, who is an enemy. In Book 19 in particular, there's, um, you know, there's this this line that, that Aftran the Yerk says, which is, um, she says to Cassie, your morality is very simple. Anything humans do is okay. Anything Yerks do is wrong. And that's essentially the morality of a lot of children's literature. Uh, it's just, it's just whatever the heroes do is justified, and whatever the enemies do is wrong. But I mean, this series com- like constantly challenges that. It's constantly saying, you know, the the heroes can can do monstrous things. The quote unquote heroes can do monstrous things, and you know, sometimes the Yerks are people, as as demonstrated in Book Nineteen, and they and they make moral choices. I mean, in Book Nineteen, you learn that the Yerks have a peace movement, which is like you know, it completely changes the course of the series because it's, up until now, the Yerks have just been these verminous slug who take over people's brains, which is just a classic sci-fi villain. But it's like, what if some of these slugs had a peace movement saying like, hey, we don't agree with doing this. We don't think we should we should take hosts against their will. That's wrong. Mm-hmm. And 
it's it's constantly challenging you on on your assumptions and you know how you categorize people as wrong or right it's 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 unrelenting in that yeah and i think the series really kind of puts that in the context of like you know the greater animal kingdom right it cuz mm. it's like the morality of predation and parasitism in general like it's it's an interesting question how much we can project our human values on other species and like what is it about the yurks that makes the way they're conducting themselves you know immoral by human standards because i mean it is a compelling argument there she's like sorry we're parasites this is what we do (laughs) (laughs) you know like would you get mad at a lion for killing a gazelle where do you kind of draw the line she brings up the fact that humans keep you know livestock in horrible conditions and then kill them to eat them and so how is what are the Yerks are doing any different than that. Well, and the really wild thing when you step back and think about it is that, you know, the entire premise of these books is the kids have this morphing technology that allows them to like uh, interact with the DNA of another uh, animal. And then after that, they can morph into that animal at will for up to two hours. And then they have to take a rest back in their human body. Uh, that is technology that would fix the Yerk problem of like wanting to be in bodies that can do things that their bodies can't and nullify like the agency problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't they don't need the hosts like right. necessarily to exist, right? Like they even when they're with the hosts, they actually have to like come out or they'll die. And like rest in a in a natural kind of environment for them, the Andalites have the solution to their problem, yes. but they are so warlike that they will not share it with people. I can't believe that didn't even occur to me, but you're absolutely <laughs> right that like with the Yerks, their whole motivation right for taking over hosts is not because they need them to reproduce or you know it's not like necessary for their life cycle or for their survival it's just that the yurks don't have vision they have like a more primitive sensory system and they Mm -hmm. just they like being able to see things and experience things and like be more mobile and you know not just be swimming around in a pool yeah well i think the andalite imperialism effects go even deeper than that so Uh, This is an argument I've made in this fandom for a long time. Think about it. So in book 19, Aftran, you know, justifies the Yurk's desire for hosts, saying, well, I want to experience the world the way you do. She says to Cassie, like, you get to move through this beautiful world. You get to to see and experience everything around you. Like, why why can't I have the same thing? But if you think about it, I mean, in their natural state, Yurks are slugs living in pools. And they have their own set of senses. In other books, they talk about how the Yurks have sonar, um, they can kind of, you know, echolocate inside of their pools. Uh, they have like an osmosis nose that let them, you know, interact with and absorb things from the water that they live in. So, I mean, if you think about it, they actually do have a sensorium and they are mobile. They can swim around their pool. 
So the question is, why do they feel that their own sensory apparatus is inferior and bad, and their own form of mobility is inferior and bad? And then you start to think, is it because the Andalites came and occupied their planet? Never mm -hmm. asking, because the Andalites never asked, they just showed up on their planet with a military, came to the, their pools, and then they imposed, perhaps, that they had their own technology that required Andalite sensory modalities and Andalite forms of mobility to interact with, which the Yerks couldn't do because they didn't have the right... I mean, it wasn't underwater or, like, Yerk-compatible technology. So, like, of course they would think that their own sensory experience and their own mobility was inferior because the Andalites come, they've got this amazing technology, and it's not compatible with them. Instead of doing the sort of social model of disability thing and saying, this technology should be suitable for us, and it's the Andalites' problem, it's the Yerks internalize this, this worldview, saying, well, this is our problem, we have the wrong bodies. We can't interact with this technology, we can't interact with these people, so we need to have host bodies that can. Like, I, I'm kind of questioning, essentially, the inherent ableism of, of Aftran's assertion that she needs a host because she needs to be able to see and move around. Which is like a narrative that you see unfold all over the place in hatred towards America and the West, right? Of like, we show up with higher technologies than other people who are, you know, we're actively exploiting in the global South. And then they get their hands on some of that technology and start to resist the West. And we're like, whoa, 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 who do you think you are? And now you're like, <laughs> you're our biggest enemy. And it's like, well, <laughs> like, think about how all that came about, you know, like, where did that come from? Uh, yeah, that's a that's a really good observation. Yeah, um, I really love that read on it. I have spent twenty years thinking about it. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, and I and I basically read ten books in one week. And so, <laughs> I did think when I was reading it that like when Aftran's talking about that stuff, and it's all very ableist, and I didn't feel like it was like unconsciously ableist about like talking about well, I want to be able to see and I want to be able to hear the way that you can or I want to fly like a bird. I didn't feel like that stuff was Applegate accidentally mm. doing that stuff um, the way that you might in in some other uh, writing cases. But like the way that I read it was that there was, um, that they were kind of imperialist, the Yerks, in their culture and in their approach to the humans and to Earth. And that that was a representing the way that imperialism kind of makes an assumption about mm. our time, you know, and how like we should be productive all the time and mm. all of your physical capabilities and mental capabilities should be oriented towards work, uh, mm. not towards like your enrichment or like cultural enrichment or the enrichment, God forbid, of like people outside of your borders or your cultural sphere. Um, that's a waste of resources for the for the empire, mm -hmm. right? Um, capitalism owns your body. It, it owns abled bodies as the bodies that it's really interested in, and those and and the most ably minded. Uh, as soon as your mental acuity begins to erode, we're going to trade you in for a, a newer, smarter model. Um, in the same for your body and especially especially when it comes to the military that's true um and these you know in the military is when they're recruiting children honestly at like 16 17 years old 
they're in the schools telling them, especially kids like Marco, you know, with single parent homes, uh, not a lot of money. Cassie's family is really struggling for money in this book, telling them, hey, you want to go to college for free? You want to join that professional class? You want to level up your family experience? All you got to do is give us your body, give us your mind, Mm -hmm. and you too can get into the economy. Um, Just give us everything. And that's what Aftran's saying, you know, like your bodies are for us. Yeah. And that does kind of bring up another type of diversity that I didn't talk about before, but there's all different kinds of family structures represented. There's like, quote unquote, good, like intact families with like functional good parents that, you know, treat their children well and with respect. Cassie's family. Yep. Cassie and Jake. (laughs) Yeah, Cassie and Jake yeah. have, like, good families. Tobias has the shittiest family. <laughs> like, his, neither mm-hmm. of his parents wanted him. He, they basically, like, abandoned him to relatives who also, like, don't give a shit about him. Rachel's parents, you know, they treat their kids well, but they're divorced, and, and there's, like, drama about that. Marco's mom is... Uh, Dead. Well, she, uh. well <laughs> at the start of the story, he thinks his mom is dead or she's disappeared and his dad has basically like his dad isn't a bad person but you know the loss of his wife has just like really affected his ability to be a functional human being and so marco has had to kind of like grow up really fast in a lot of ways and kind of like parent his dad because his dad isn't doing a good job of parenting him so it's Mm -hmm. it's this like really broad and complex spectrum of different types of family systems and interactions that I thought was really, really well done. Well, and Axe, don't forget Axe. Axe does, you know, does have have parents as well, but he's basically stranded across the galaxy from them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he's been raised to be in this military role. And then, like, all of his experiences on Earth are, like, troubling his entire orientation to all of that stuff and he like really gloms on to jake to like reproduce Mm -hmm. the hierarchy of his society yeah yeah he calls him like (laughs) prince jake and jake's like i'm not a prince and and is just like i don't care you're you're a prince to me (laughs) listen i need this okay (laughs) i'm an orphan on this planet (laughs) oh poor axe it's awful poor axe He's my favorite. Who doesn't yeah. love Axe? He's he's like an alien on Earth. It's such a classic thing. Like it's really yeah. funny because um so the the six um the six animals alternate in narration. So you alternate between the six animals, but um but Axe and Tobias switch off. So the order goes uh Jake, Jake, Rachel, then Tobias or Axe, then Cassie, then Marco. So Axe and Tobias get half as many point of view books as the others. Apparently this is because Scholastic thought they'd be less relatable <laughs> to kids. And like <laughs> practically everybody I know, their favorite was either Axe or Tobias. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely in the Axe camp. <laughs> My favorite as a kid was Rachel, but. <laughs> yeah, I think I remember also identifying the most with Rachel as a kid. Although, in retrospect, I feel like maybe I should have identified more with Cassie just because she's so competent and she's so science-oriented. I guess <laughs> Ra- Rachel's more bossy um, and extroverted. And so I think that's where I was coming from because Cassie is pretty mm. 
introverted and thoughtful. You know, she's the kind of person who, like, she's maybe the quietest person in the room, but when she does have something to say, like, everyone listens to her because it's just, like, you know, fucking knocks everyone's off their feet, which is absolutely not me. (laughs) (laughs) I loved her in this book because her whole thing is radical empathy. Mm Mm-hmm. And that is like so often that is not a heroic character trait in these kind of like action adventure genres. You know, this is very subversive to center the story on a character like this. And then to make, I mean, essentially in this book, she like loses in a, in yeah. a certain sense. Yeah. And, but by losing wins. And like that is so yeah. rare, I think. That is very literary and very like, empathetically focused that is not yeah an action adventure is not like we will win with empathy like that that never happens man and this isn't the only book where she does this like in um yeah i mean famously in at least in the banner fandom famously in uh in book 51 she uh purposefully allows the yurks to get a hold of the morphing power for the very reason that you pointed out alan which is that she sees she sees the radical possibility of what would happen if the Yurks got access to the morphing technology and saw an alternative to their lifestyle of mm-hmm. taking over hosts. Um, and the other Enworks are so angry at her because she's basically given them this enormous military advantage. But she's, she empathizes with the Yurks and she's able to see things from their point of view that this would change their minds and allow them to, um, to see things from another perspective. And it's funny too because I feel like um, Applegate doesn't just like sit, you know, make this situation happen and then leave it here because the arc that comes right after this really troubles this entire see it from the other side type thing where you get like the bad Animorph character joins the team and like messes everything up really badly. Yeah. The David trilogy is so good. It's so good. The next three books after 19 are just the, I mean, they're just absolutely incredible books. Uh, yeah, I think that's so smart to put those right after this one because this feels like an answer in some sense and then to like trouble that answer and be like, war is not that simple. And yeah, and there are people in the world who feast on that type of environment and thrive. I mean, also, like, I mean, Cassie's radical empathy is a super dark side in the David trilogy, right? I mean... Uh, so again, just to, yes. just to explain to people who don't know, so the, in the in the next three books after 19, uh, it's a trilogy about this guy named David who joins the Animorphs, and he is kind of a bad apple. He is not a good choice to be an Animorph. He just, like, basically just becomes a, a serial killer. Uh, oh, God. Which is really yeah. bad, obviously. Uh, and the Animorphs have to stop him. But, but Cassie, like, her empathy is a really dark side in that trilogy, because... She is able to use her empathy for David to emotionally manipulate him. Mm-hmm. And basically, like, she comes up with this, like, she comes up with the plan that allows them to stop David. I mean, she's the one who is able to see things from his perspective in order to destroy him. Wow. Yeah, and that was when we were initially trying to think about what books we might cover for this podcast. That was the first uh, set of books that you suggested that we mm-hmm. actually read the David trilogy. Um, I think we decided against it because the audiobooks weren't that far yet. Um, the audiobooks yeah, exactly. were only up to 20. So for people in our audience, like typically I will read stuff via audiobook. Both because, like, I listen to audiobooks constantly at my job, which doesn't really require a lot of mental attention. 
it's physical labor, but then also because like I have a reading disability, which makes me read at about the speed of the Star Wars crawl uh, <laughs> at the beginning of the movies. Um, so it takes me a little bit of time to get through reading a book. And so, yeah, the Animorphs actually, we didn't talk about this in the production section, but they are undergoing a republishing, which I'm sure the Applegates are not being paid for, um, that is kind of like editing and updating them. Uh, and the audiobooks are a part of that whole thing. So I, I believe they are not audio productions of the original published material, but of this new edited reissue. That kind of makes me sad because there's so much 90s nostalgia. Yes. <laughs> they like yeah. they talk about like, oh, this new CD just came out, you know? And there and there was like uh what's the other thing oh landline telephones are like uh the kitchen phone rang and blah 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 <laughs> i picked it up because it had the longest cord <laughs> they spend a lot of time hanging out at the mall i don't know that's yeah. like not something that's easy to fix so i don't know if they're gonna give them somewhere else to go but yeah just like the idea of a an indoor mall as like the center of their social life it was so funny yeah, the, the, the republished three issue is, is really doing a, a very, very superficial like updating of the references. Um, but the audiobooks are really great. I recommend them. Um, they're like, I mean, I really enjoyed the audiobook of 19. I've been listening to all the audiobooks. We talked about these being kind of like comic books. There's a lot of onomatopoeia that happens in the books. <laughs> um I was really surprised while I was listening to it of like the when I don't just say like screeching like a hawk or something like that. Like they do the screeching and uh, <laughs> and the roaring and things like that. that was fun. I enjoyed that. But are they like putting in actual like clips of roaring? Oh, or no, screeching? it's no. a narrator. Yeah, it's oh, a nice. person going like roar. You know, like, <laughs> it's so it's. It's, that's why I like it because it's not like a horse sound. It's like a, it's like an underpaid VO person who's like, <laughs> you know, like a sound like a horse. No, do it again. Make a sound like a skunk. Why can't you do it, Stephen? <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah, I got, actually I went and got the uh, first one. For my youngest daughter, because she was always talking about how, wouldn't it be easier if you could just be a hamster like my hamster? Wouldn't that be easier than having to go to school and all this? Like, she's feeling the pressure of the world. And I was like, here, read these books about these kids who can become animals and see how easy it is. So how long ago did you do that? Has she gotten into them? Yeah, she read the first one. And then she was like, these kids make a lot of bad choices, Dad. They... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't do. know if I agree with like <laughs> they shouldn't become insects. That's a bad move. Like why would you do that? <laughs> I mean, okay, so speaking of choices though, we've talked a little bit about how Apple Grant asks like hard questions about our sense of morality and like sci-fi morality. I think they also do a really good job of setting up less philosophical or I don't that's not the right word. Like uh, less big picture moral questions of like what is morality, but just like putting them into kind of like trolley problem dilemmas where mm -hmm. in book 19, Cassie, in order to get 
the Yurk, um, Aftron, whatever, whatever, out of Karen, the girl, she offers to let Aftran go into her head, but she's not thinking far enough ahead to realize mm. that that gives Aftron morphine power. And so Aftron can just like turn in now that she's, or now that the Yurk is in control of Cassie's body together, they can turn into, I forget what her bird of prey morph is. Osprey. Um, Osprey. Yeah. They can morph into the Osprey and then get away. And then the other four, an- five Animorphs, are put in the position of, like, we may have to kill our friend in order yeah. to save ourselves. So they're, like, everyone is in these ethical quandaries, right? Like, they know how to kill Yurks via mm. attrition, like, keeping them from going back to their nutrient pool. They did that before. But Cassie doesn't feel like she can do that in this situation and then ends up putting her friends in a situation where they feel like they might have to kill her in order to protect themselves because if Aftron gets back to the other Yurks, you know, the the Yurks don't know who the Animorphs are. They think they're Andalite warriors. Um, they don't even realize that they're humans. And so by giving the rest of the Yurks that information that not only are are the rebels humans instead of Andalites, um, but, you know, their individual identities, the Yurks can just, you know, go kill them and their families or, like, anyone that they care that care about, you know, hold them hostage. And Marco very nearly does kill Cassie in that book. Like, this yeah. is, like, a kid's book, and, like, one of them nearly kills the other. And it's great foreshadowing, of course, the David trilogy where they, I mean, they right. don't kill David. They worse than kill David. Yeah. Um, let me just explain to Anya what happens in, in the David trilogy. <laughs> what they end up doing with this um, murderous Animorph is they trap him in Morph as a rat forever, which is supposedly more kid-friendly, but is actually worse than killing him. Ooh, yeah. And, the, and to be clear, the book is does not flinch away from this, that it's worse. The book is very clear that it's worse. Interesting. Yeah. And there's, yeah, there's like a trauma to it. That Cassie carries afterwards, too. Because Cassie came up with the plan to trap him in Morb as a rat. It was was her who came up with it, which is just wild. I have a question for you that's, like, a much more practical question. Is it answered in the series, if you get stuck in a morph, do you have, like, a natural human lifespan? Or does your lifespan revert to that of the animal that you're trapped in? It's the latter. They're, they're okay. clear about it. It's the latter. You have the lifespan of the animal you're trapped in. I get the impression that Tobias is not actually stuck as a hawk forever, but if he were to stay- No, he's it's... stuck as a hawk. He is stuck as a hawk forever. Okay, okay. So he is, I don't know how long hawks live, but you know, like- This comes up in the last book. Basically, like, I think it's like 15 or something for a hawk. Yeah, not not a human lifespan at okay. all. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's like after the war and Tobias is getting kind of old for a hawk and it's- so, like, in book 13, Tobias gets the power to morph again, but his base form is a hawk. Um, I and so, see. So, basically, in the in the last book, the other characters kind of bring up to Tobias, like, hey, your hawk form is getting kind of old. Like, maybe you want to leave that form now and get trapped as a different form so you don't die. And Tobias is basically like, no. <laughs> I refuse. Because <laughs> yeah, he's very mentally I guess, ill. I guess he can't morph back into himself. He can, he- actually. Okay, he can okay. be a boy, but it, then he would stay that way forever. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He would just be a And never morph human. again. Right. And he could have done that after the war, but he does not choose to do that, which is very interesting. So this might be a good time to talk about 
the idea of Animorphs in general or Tobias specifically as like a metaphor for transness. Tobias in specific, to me, I don't think, I don't think morphing in general is much of a metaphor for transness, but Tobias in specific is. I love the way that it's done because I totally see how, you know, trans people would read that into his experience, but also that it's like not a one-to-one analogy. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of ambiguity about whether Tobias prefers to be a hawk or to be a boy because when he was still a human in the first book and he felt way more at home as a hawk like but then once he gets trapped as a hawk he also seems to miss being a human and wish that he could go back kind of at will so it's it's really really interesting uh, this isn't obviously my lane uh but I think that's why it's kind of successful because I don't think the trans experience can ever be the cis experience. And then, of course, like all of Western society is calibrated to the cis experience. And so, you know, like Tobias never again feels completely like a boy when he's a boy and he never feels completely like a bird and and so I I think that just the trans experience is its own experience where yeah. you never feel like you're fully this or that, if that makes sense. Or at least that's that's the non-binary trans the trans experience. I mean, certainly there are binary trans yeah. people who feel like fully one hundred percent like they are men or or women or. But oh yeah, I don't mean that they yeah, yeah the, like he feels like what what he is, but but he never he always carries the experience of being the other with him too. Mm. In a way that I think that a cisgender person just cannot understand of experiencing what the other gender is, or even what the outside of it is like to someone else. They can't, that's not an experience that I can ever actually totally understand. I think. I mean, to me, the, um, to me, the moments when it becomes most striking are the moments when, uh, you know, after book 13, when he gets the power to morph back and he can morph his human self again. Like, it, he very clearly experiences dysphoria when he's morphing his own human self. And the thing is, we have no way of right. knowing if he experienced dysphoria as his human self before he became a hawk, because the, he becomes trapped as a hawk in the first book, and that book isn't in his point of view. So we mm-hmm. don't know if maybe he had dysphoria before that point, but, but he certainly mm. has dysphoria in his human form after that. Like, it's, yeah. there are a million different ways it's very obvious. He moves very awkwardly um, as, his, as his human self. He just doesn't seem to fit in in, in social situations. Uh, like, it's, he's not all that comfortable in his human body. And maybe that was always true, or maybe that's something that became true. But that, to me, is why, is why Tobias feels the most like a, like a trans metaphor, because... The other animals probably have a clear sense of what their natural body is and what their true body is, and Tobias does not have that stable sense of, like, this is what my true body is, which is, I think, a, a powerful trans metaphor. Yeah, that's exactly, that's really well put, and that's kind of exactly what I was trying to say, of, like, the, so, like, you know, we we talk about, like, natural kinds and things like that, which, which um, I don't really believe in very much, <laughs> but, like... If there are natural genders, then I would tend to think that there are only two. 
and and that would not be male and female, but it would be people who feel natural and comfortable in their bodies and people who don't. And and so like that seems to be Tobias's experience, and and that's kind of what I meant. Mm. Is his relationship with his body is not like anybody else's in the story. Yeah, definitely. Well, and also I might point out. Uh, I mean, one of my favorite, another one of my favorite trans Tobias moments is that um, in in book um, forty three, he actually morphs a, a human girl. Uh, oh. And, and uh, and it's really interesting because like the the narrative doesn't really stop to dwell on it, but what's super interesting is that when he morphs his his own human body, he's clearly very dysphoric, and you just when he's when he morphs this human girl Taylor, he does not seem to have that dysphoria, <laughs> and I'm just like, hmm, isn't that interesting? <laughs> <laughs> As I know, I like spent a lot of time earlier, kind of like praising the gender dynamics of uh, the books. There are definitely some places where the way that gender is presented does feel super out of date. Like, um... Marco. Yeah, Marco. <laughs> um, a, lot of the, a lot of the shit that Marco says just, like, feels super... Yeah, of that 90s, like boys and girls being like very distinct and separate and like having this like antagonistic setup for instance when they're morphing or when they're like i think was it when they were at the zoo acquiring morphs wolves or something i don't know but there was like a definite thing of like marco being like oh well i need to morph the boy wolf i can't morph a girl wolf because like that would be weird and it's like you're turning into a fucking wolf like there's (laughs) it's it's pretty weird (laughs) it's already weird i don't think like being a girl wolf is gonna be the weirdest part about that (laughs) no it's true i mean a lot of marco's stuff that he says would not fly anymore you know in a book for this age group like or like he would have to be shut down much more decisively if yeah. he said stuff mm. like that mm-hmm. these days. Yeah. Although there is that funny thing that you pointed out where, like, some of his, like, most sarcastic, like, shitty things can be interpreted a different way. Where, like, you were telling me that how in fandom there's this, uh, a lot of people kind of, like, have this headcanon where Marco is actually bisexual because he says these things to Jake (laughs) that are supposed to be sarcastic. But, um, you know, if you've ever had that, like, closeted queer experience of, like, joking about your attraction to someone, but it's, like, not really a joke, you know, it, like, it totally reads that way if you go into it with that mindset. Yeah, absolutely. There's a bunch of stuff where... um... In the in the books where where Marco is um, kind of teasing Jake and it's supposed to be a joke, like in one book he he writes he writes Jake an email as Cassie, like a love letter, basically, and he like pretends to be Cassie and tries to like catfish Jake with this <laughs> love letter email, and it's it's supposed to be a quote unquote joke, but I'm just like, it's kind of. <laughs> like, fellas, is it gay <laughs> if you pretend to be your bro's girlfriend and write him <laughs> catfish love letter email? <laughs> no, it's it's a common headcanon, and I do love that 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 Applegate and Grant on Twitter have said. Uh, I mean, 
they've they've done the thing that Rowling should have done, which is like they when people come to them with these headcanons, they say, you know, we didn't put that in, um, and that wasn't our intention, but we really enjoy that you're reading that into it, and we encourage you to do so, which is great. I mean, I think it's it's the right approach. They're not taking credit for representation they didn't do, but they're also encouraging people to bring those interpretations. Yeah, yeah, mm, exactly. Yeah. That's <laughs> it is like a you know the ideal um, way to to bring that death of the author concept, right? Like you can take what the author um, had as their intentions in mind, but you know what you read into the text is what it means to you. In in book forty, there is a, a gay and like couple, which I love very much. Um, I mean, it's 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 in that '90s way. Like, so have either of you read um, Young Wizards, Diane Duane? Um, no. Mm-mm. Oh boy, it's like this this '90s '80s slash '90s way of doing gay representation, where it's like they don't say that they're gay, but there's just these two men who live together and like are clearly like <laughs> long term right. living together, and just you know, it's just that's their thing. Um, that's they have that, but for like this gay and like couple in book forty. Um, which, like, the, the author is definitely intended as, as canon gay stuff. Um, I, I love, I love them very much, um, this, the, these gay Andalites, uh, though they're, they're a pretty mixed, <laughs> mixed bag as far as representation goes. Like, they're, they're very sweet and adorable, and I, I love them with all my heart, but, like, one of them does have space AIDS. <laughs> oh, just, yeah. <laughs> He's dying of space AIDS, and it's really, <laughs> it's pretty grim, <laughs> like, I'm just like, did you have to give him space aids? <laughs> yeah, like I mean, I guess it was the '90s, but also like it's sci-fi. You you can do what you want. Like, have a little bit of escapism. He does do space weed for his space aids, which is incredibly valid of him. But oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's not exactly the representation we were necessarily hoping for <laughs> there's not yeah that's true there's not a perfect representation in this it was making me think of when we were talking about Nanette and about the idea of the mirror of art you know and and how flat you can get that mirror and i think there's a lot of warped stuff like you were saying about how cassie is textually black but not necessarily coded black she is just you know an American girl, which yeah. really is like a white girl, you know, <clears throat> she's black on the page and on the cover, which is like, I, you know, better than nothing, but is definitely not great representation in the way that the discourse goes on now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think this was like pretty typical 90s liberalism of like post-historical, post-racial, it's post-communism. So, like, we need to all, we're just human beings, guys. Like, you know, and Martin Luther King happened, and we know it's not perfect. We know that Rodney King happened, and there's a long way to go. But the way we're going to get there is by acknowledging that we're all the same, that we're all white inside, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that we're all straight. (laughs) So, and and that was not the way it turned out. Um, But I did, I did get it like a, interesting resonance with the modern discourse in this book because on the page Cassie is black and 
Aftran is in the body of this white girl who is very, very rich. Like the yeah. reason that Aftran is in this body is because it is the child of like a millionaire. I think it's like a president of a bank or something. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. So he's like important financial person. And this is a way for them to keep tabs on him and get closer. Maybe they're going to flip him too. And so um, her name is literally uh, Karen, which you know <laughs> they could not have known the way that Karen would be used nowadays. But on the face of it, you know, when, when they're in the forest at first, I was like, this is kind of interesting because Karen is accusing Cassie just on a surface level. You don't know if you don't understand the backstory of everything, you know, because I just kind of read this book without understanding Animorphs. You have a white rich girl telling a black girl, you're dangerous. Mm. And like, you are a violent, terrible person who wants to kill people constantly because she believes she's an Andalite disguised as a human. And so like, just show me how violent you are so that I can pull my gun out and kill you. And like, this is, Mm -hmm. this is the white discourse to black people about, you know, about the rights to their bodies, about, we know what your true nature is and we are ready. You know, we're just inviting you to come and be yourself so that we are justified in gunning you down. Literally. That is the situation that the first act is playing out like on its surface level. And I thought it was just super interesting, the optics of it. Yeah, it's a really good point. And also, so some Animorphs fans have accused Book 19 of being racist because it involves a black girl extending this radical empathy toward a slaveholder. Because that's what Aftran is. She is a slaver. She's enslaving this girl. Um, mm. And I I really feel that it's the opposite. Or I, I mean, again, I, I'm not black. I'm Latina. Um, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to step out of my lane. But to me, or my experience of reading essays and fiction by black people is that they tend to actually show more empathy towards slaveholders than anyone else. Um, Empathy in the sense of trying to understand their perspective. Like, if you read something like Kindred by Octavia Butler, like, she very much tries to show slaveholders as full human beings and tries to understand their perspective. That's something I can really understand. I mean, like, I'm, I'm also Jewish, and, like, I think I've spent way more time thinking about the humanity and personhood of Nazis than most people have. Uh, so to me, the fact that we have this this black girl extending empathy toward and trying to understand why a slaveholder does what she does is actually really kind of resonant and interesting, even if it's not what Apple Grant intended, necessarily. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and I think that empathy does come from what we've known about Cassie's character up until this point. So it, it's not like it comes out of nowhere, right? Like, both of her parents are vets. Um, she has an animal rescue organization, like, housed on the farm where she lives. Her whole, you know, life is devoted to taking care of animals and um, rehabilitating them and, like, really empathizing with all kinds of creatures. Um, so it it makes sense that that's what she would um, do in the situation with an alien 
even taking the racial aspect out of it. Although I I like what you're saying about how leaving the racial aspect in makes it even more meaningful. No, I think that's really good how how you're like putting the focus on uh, like non-human animals, right? I think that's how Case, uh, Casey, I think that's how Cassie sees it. You know, we're all these embodied biological creatures and in, in that the yeah. animals and the aliens, there's like, there's no difference, right? And then there's humans and the books really support that in, in the way that they can uh, become different embodied biological creatures. And I think this is super interesting um, aspect of it, of the whole thing. And is something that I was like, oh, of course a woman wrote this about how that is not like a, like a modality, like a John Lockean to, to talk philosophy of just like kind of banking your mind here and there. There's like a real embodiment to yeah. it that when you, yeah, when you become a different creature, when you morph, there is like a mind to that mm-hmm. creature that you reckon with and have to wrestle uh, that, and it changes you and sticks with you too. And even for the Yerks, there's a duality of mind that we find out about in this story with, uh, with Karen and Aftran, that they can communicate with each other, that they are enmeshed emotionally while they mm-hmm. are still distinct. And so like, that is not, you know, like, it's not a mind-body duality. Your your body and your mind are deeply connected and changing your body changes your mind. Yeah. I love how whenever they acquire a new morph for the first time, it takes them a while to get control of the mind and like get oriented inside of it and how prey animals and predator animals have these like very different instincts. Mm. Like prey animals are really driven by fear and it it takes a lot of effort for them to kind of like control the fear i guess like when rachel becomes a shrew yeah she's so disturbed afterwards because of how she was just like so fixated on on like seeking out dead bodies and like eating the insects on them Mm. Um, and that like Mm -hmm. it sticks with her so long after she's she's done with that morph well, and it's also really interesting because they can they can morph sentient species as well. So, I mean, Axe, of course, has to morph a human on the regular. And when you read his books, you see his perspective on what it's like to morph a human. And the human body becomes just another animal whose instincts he's trying to deal with. And it's pretty mm. challenging for him at times, right? Mm-hmm. And then the, the other animorphs morph other sentient species as well. And they have... It, it kind of displaces, in a way, what it means to be human or what it means to any of, be any of these uh, sentient species when it becomes just another morph, right? And to some extent for Tobias as well, because of you know his estrangement from his human body. Like, when Axe becomes a human, he becomes, like, overwhelmed by, um, by the sense of taste. Yeah. And wanting to, wanting to, to try food, because <laughs> Andalites eat, like, just so basically just absor- passively absorb grass with their hooves. So they don't, they don't have any... Which is so <laughs> smart. I love that. Me too. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> yeah. But then and he's so like, like so into Cinnabon. <laughs> 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 and how that's like the one thing that that is like threatens to give him away every time he's in human morph is his like completely unreasonable reaction to food and like how much he eats and how like 
uh, socially inappropriate he is. Just like, uh, okay, book eight, the first <laughs> textbook, was by far my favorite it's of so all great. of the ones um, that I read for this podcast. And I love when he, he goes to the movie theater and he's just like crawling on the floor, like picking up food off the floor yeah. and like stealing <laughs> food from people's hands. And like, oh, it's so good. <laughs> He discovers chocolate, yeah. Yeah, oh gosh, X. But it's great because it, it you know, it just helps you think again about, about you know, humans just being another animal. Because for X, it just is another animal more that he's trying to, to cope with, right? Right. And that's that's kind of a good lead-in to one of the other things um, that you and I talked about. And that's the idea of Animorphs as kind of like a series of first contact stories. Mm. And how... Yeah. I guess the first one is um, the humans and the Andalites, and yep. then the humans and the Yurks um, in the departure. Um, well, the so that- actually, the the humans and the Hork-Bajir happens before the humans and the Yurks. So okay. in book eight, so like book four is kind of the first contact of, between the Animorphs and the Andalites because they they find Axe in that book, right? And so then you learn more about Andalites over the course of the next several books and what they're like. And then in book thirteen. Uh, the Animorphs meet some free Hork-Bajir. So that's one of the, that's one of the um, slave species of the Yurks, Hork-Bajir, who are like these like really enormous, bladed, lizard-like things. They're totally covered in blades. Um, and they're like basically shock troops to the Yurks. And the Animorphs meet some free ones for the first time in Book 13. And it turns out that the, the Hork-Bajir are covered in blades because they're bark eaters. Like they live in trees and they use the blades to carve bark off of trees and eat it. And the Yurks have basically turned their bodies into weapons. That's not what they're actually what they actually use their own blades for. The Animorphs get a whole new perspective on the Hork-Bajir by actually meeting some free ones, and they continue to hang out with these free Hork-Bajir throughout the series. So that first contact story is another one. And then you know, Book Nineteen is basically this kind of real first contact between humans and Yurks. Um, and then later in the series, you get. Um, a sort of first contact between humans and taxons in book 43, which is like, like the taxons are another one of the, the species, the slave species of the Yurks, and they're basically like enormous centipedes. <laughs> Again, with most of these first contacts, like these are species that the Animorphs find very scary before they meet them. Like before they actually meet some Freehork Bajir, they're terrifying to the Animorphs. Before Cassie actually gets to know Aftran, the Yurks are terrifying to her. Uh, and then before the the Animorphs get to know the taxons, they're just these giant, scary, cannibalistic centipedes. And then they actually get to know some, some taxons a little bit, and they get a new perspective on them. So, yeah, there's kind of a, a series of different first contacts that occur throughout the series. Yeah, and I think it's just so cool that, like, you know, first contact is such a, you know, a fundamental sci-fi trope. Animorphs brings that into kids' lit. And does it in such an interesting and varied way, you know, like the same experience happens four different times um, in four very different ways. Yes, and it also is very subversive to me because of the fact that, like, like I said, each of these species appeals instinctively to humans to different degrees. So the Andalites happen first, and the Andalites are kind of more charismatic to human sensibilities. Like they are, they have fur, they have eyes. Some of the humans, uh, namely Cassie, Rachel, and Marco, <coughs> the ones attracted to men, <coughs> uh, describe, <laughs> describe Axe um, as cute in his natural form, right? Andalites are clearly just viscerally appealing to humans on some level. But then the Hork-Bajir are not, 
because they're frightening to humans. Um, but then you get to know them, and that perception turns out to be wrong, right? And then the Yurks are very much not charismatically appealing to humans, they're parasites, right? Uh, but then when Cassie gets to know Aftran, they become friends, and Aftran comes back in a later book and, you know, continues to be important to, to Cassie. And then, you know, when they get to know the taxons, uh, the taxons are cannibalistic centipedes, which obviously is not very appealing to human sensibilities, and yet when the animorphs actually get to know them and their situation a little bit more, then they become more sympathetic. And so mm -hmm. it's, um, because basically what's going on with the taxons is that they have an uncontrollable hunger, and they basically just, like, driven by constant screaming hunger, and they, they kind of can't stop themselves from being cannibals, more or less. They also become more sympathetic. So there's this a really great deconstruction that happens both via the morphs and via, via the first contacts, where, like, Apple Grant kind of play, they play with the reader's expectations, where they, they know which ones you're going to find disgusting instinctually, which ones you're not, and they, and they play on that. And they say, like, you know, was your, was your first instinct to, to find this disgusting or awful correct? Was this wrong of you to think of them this way? Yeah, and I think that mirrors like the experience that a lot of people have as they grow up too, because they hear about all of these different species, you know, or experience the them in some kind of peripheral sense before getting to know them better, right? Like they have battles with Horkbajir before they find the free ones. Yeah. Uh, and so like that, I think that happens with kids too, where you will hear about, like, I can remember, or I'll just make it personal. Uh, you know, like I was raised in a very evangelical uh, white straight home and like very strict uh, parents. And I can remember like going out into the world and becoming an adult and like nine 11 happened and trying to learn more about Muslim culture and mm. uh, Islam and, and like the history of all that stuff. And like seeing pictures of uh, Iran and Iraq in like the early 1970s, late 1960s and going like, wait a minute, they're, they're just like us. Yeah. Like, I don't, what, ha I don't understand. Like, that's not the scary, why don't they all have rocket launchers? I thought they just had those. They, they don't, they live in tents. They have like houses. What's going on? And like, I'm, I'm kind of like making myself sound like an idiot, but like I was, but also like, you know, like this was the picture that was painted for me that, because that's easier to hate someone like that. Right. Because it's easier to like, create this like monster and then you can do anything that you need to to the monster to survive and you know that's one of the effects of imperialism and war and these kids experience these others you know capital o others and find out it's it's more complicated than that it's never that simple the enemy is always a person who has like yeah. a perspective and a reason and is like a whole thing and then also the Andalites who appeal to our senses are actually these terrible imperialists who in the end tried to nuke the entire earth. And and how it was there from the beginning, like even in their embodiment, they have a weapon as part of their body that is like a fundamental part of who they are in these stingers. Mm. Well, and not even in the like the weapon is a part of their body, but the like super militaristic culture. Yeah. And like as soon as, mm -hmm. I mean, because I, I didn't know the ending of the series until poetry just told us on the podcast today. Um, but it really is like made me think back about what we learned about Andalite culture when they met Axe and like through Axe's perspective and, and yeah, like the way that he 
keep secrets and um and all of that like it was totally foreshadowed from the very beginning yeah absolutely a funny story about the about the aliens of Anwars. that's an aspect of Anwars i love i think the uh, the aliens are really well done and are very interesting uh and what's what's very funny is uh, i i have read in um uh, Applegate has done, and, and Grant have done some Reddit AMAs and, and talked about, you know, some of their process and stuff. And they have, they've mentioned that they originally wrote the Andalites just as greys. Like, you know, like Broswell greys at the beginning. Mm. And then Scholastic said, like, oh, we need you to juice it up and make them more interesting. And so <laughs> Applegate and Grant were just like, oh, you want interesting, huh? You want interesting? <laughs> Get a load of this. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> And then they went on to make aliens that were so complicated that they couldn't make a proper TV show when they attempted it because the aliens <laughs> were way too weird. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. It's such so a power move. Was the TV show? Are they like CGI? Because like I imagine you. No, they're you practical even... puppets, and they're horrible. Oh my god! I was about to say there's no way you could do an Andalite with prosthetics or whatever, but I guess they tried anyway. <laughs> they tried, and it's a nightmare. Don't watch it. <laughs> That's so sad. Because I feel like, uh, I mean, you could if you went the 100% CGI route, or you know, like combination uh cgi with motion capture like andy circus golem style like i feel like you could do a decent job of that today but maybe not when the tv show was first made so i do just have one tiny rant that i have to make um before we end the show my least favorite part of the series is how literally every single animorph hates math and i was just like so annoyed by all the math hatred as someone who really likes math and thinks that math uh, doesn't get enough credit or, you know, it's just like, uh, I just wish, like, just have one, have at least one of them actually like math. I feel like we're sending (laughs) bad messages to people or to kids, you know, like maybe if we didn't, tell kids all the time that math is hard and boring and they should hate it maybe they wouldn't hate it as much um (laughs) so that that was i know it's like such a small detail but every time one of them would make a joke about how horrible math was i was just like oh seething on the inside this is the endless fight right between stem and the humanities of like (laughs) we will always mythologize how we hate stem and stem will be like well we'll just never pay you people (laughs) I guess the way it is. That makes me think that, like, maybe what's happening there is just that Apple Grant hate math, and that that was like their personal feelings seeping in to the text. I would think so. Okay, well, um, I think we're kind of at the end of our conversation, so poetry will give you a chance to just kind of. Give one last spiel about how Animorphs has impacted you. Like, what are your overall thoughts on it? Is there anything else that you want to tell people um, before we wrap this up? Thank gosh, it's hard to overstate how much Animorphs has impacted my life. I mean, politically, it really solidified my anti-war and anti-imperialist politics at a young age. Not my only influence in that direction by any means, but certainly an important one. I mean, the the book series... uh, 
you know, finished up in, in 2001, and then 9-11 happened, and there was this drumbeat of war, and I had, I had read this book series all about how war was terrible. Um, and, you know, it inspired me to become a scientist, because the author's dedication to trying to depict, you know, the real biology of animals in the series, and in trying to show their perspective, and, and the research that clearly went into it, made me really interested in, in doing research as well. Um, it has really created my taste in sci-fi. Um, to this day, I tend to love really dark stories. I tend to like stories a lot of angst. I like complex world building. I like truly alien aliens, and I really like strong ensemble dynamics, which is all stuff that I picked up from the Animorphs series. And then, of course, it you know inspired me to write this uh, this Animorphs fanfic series, Demorphing, which I've been working on for ten years and is over six hundred thousand words long, which is like, I mean, it's uh. It's, it's a hell of an undertaking for anybody to do, um, to write something that long and, and have it be a coherent story. And, and Animorphs is what inspired me to do it and to keep working on it. Like I said, I was just working on it yesterday. Um, so yeah, it's had a huge impact on my life. And so I'm mm. curious, what has been your experience recommending it to other people? Um, I'm like an Animorphs evangelist. I'm constantly um, flinging links to the eBooks at people. Uh, to be clear, I, I do believe in the authors getting paid, but, um, but most of the books are not available in print at the moment. Um, so I, so I do give people links to, to pirated ebooks, but I also encourage them to buy the audiobooks that are available. Um, so I'm constantly, you know, getting, getting people to, to read the ebooks and linking them. Um, and I no longer have, I used to have all of the Animorphs books. I don't have them because I gave them all away to my cousins because I was just getting them all to, to read it. And I think I've, I've personally been responsible for a lot of people reading Animorphs as adults who didn't read them growing up. So, um, so I've, I've, all, I've gone around <laughs> bringing the, the good word of Animorphs to many people. <laughs> yeah, well, it certainly worked for me. I, I genuinely... I mean, I have a lot of intentions to read a lot of books, but I like I feel motivated and interested in actually reading through the whole series now that I I did like the first eight books and then 19 because, yeah, I really like the characters and they're just like really fun to read. My favorite books of the ones that I read were the last three that I read before skipping ahead to the departure. I think the first five had like somewhat similar structures. Um, but once you get to number six, they really start breaking that down and like changing them in really interesting ways. So like in number six, Jake gets yerked and they have to f deal with that. In number seven, they get visited by an alien god and then they have to like make this huge decision about whether to let themselves get rescued or not because being rescued means abandoning the rest of the human race and all of this is like mirroring you know this dilemma that Rachel is having about having to decide whether to move away with her divorced dad number eight is our first axe point of view book and it's just absolutely hilarious like fish out of water comedy you know for listeners who are feeling intrigued and interested in starting Definitely start the series, and I would say get to book eight, and I think at that point you'll kind of know whether or not it's for you or not. And, you know, as I was reading, 
it was, you know, really reminding me of some of my other favorite series in a lot of ways. Like, it has a lot of connections to His Dark Materials, which Alan and I have another podcast about because of that whole, like, you know, first contact sentient alien thing. Um, not to mention, you know, the the like close relationships between humans and animals and children getting involved in war and all of that. Um, it also reminded me a lot of Buffy. I don't think I feel quite as strongly about Buffy as you do about Animorphs, but that's like the closest that I get. Um, you know, I love the like <laughs> kids fighting evil after school while also like struggling with what that means the impact it has on them like also trying to just like live their normal lives in other ways i'm super glad that we invited you on and that i had the chance to really get to know this series that i think i didn't give enough credit to when i was eight years old but i'll I'll cut myself some slack (laughs) yeah it reminded me when when you were talking about how like around 9 11 when that's when the the series came to a close that all of the work that applegate did kind of came into sharp relief i think is like part of a larger trend that i i saw in the 90s in the stuff that i read and even things that were like popular in the culture at the time like the x-files we had constructed in the west this entire kind of authority state where we had given them a lot of power because there was like this you know existential dread about you know nuclear war with the ussr And then, like, all the police actions that we did to combat that after the USSR collapsed, like, we said, okay, so now we're going to get rid of the NSA, right? We're going to reveal, like, everything that the CIA did to fight this war, and we're going to have truth and reconciliation. And they were like, no, 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 no. (laughs) What are you talking about? We're not doing that. They're like, well, let's close the military bases around the world and stuff, right? We don't need... No, 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 no. And a lot of... I think a lot of artists were like turned on all of that stuff and said, you know, there's this feels like we live in a war state now and they're just waiting for the next war so that things can get back to normal, Mm. you know, the way that they've been since world war two so that they have every excuse to like exert their authority around the world, but also on us. And that a lot of science fiction authors wrote stuff like this, where the, you know, like the Yerks, are engineering a world war that's like their plan to to like soften up humanity uh because they don't need all of us for hosts they just need enough of us to survive for them to get what they want out of us and they don't you know want to fight a big battle so why not let us kill each other off and then they can just get out of us what they need like that's a very dark plan but i think as soon as 9-11 happened like you see the effect of that. And I just wonder how many kids grew up reading Animorphs and <clears throat> got shipped overseas yeah. to the Middle East and then now live with PTSD, live yeah. with disability from the war, live with or aren't living at all, you know? Yeah. Uh and it's like it's it's heartbreaking and it's I think this is what good art does. It like especially good science fiction, it looks right into the immediate future and tells us something about ourselves and tries to warn us. So I think it's very much worth talking about. It's very much worth reading. If you know, people in the audience have listened to this and haven't read it, I think you should look into it. It's more sophisticated than you would expect. And it's, uh, 
it's got cool onomatopoeia sounds in it too. So yeah, can you do? Let's all try one. We, have, we can all do a seer, like a like the hog, like seer. <laughs> That's my best seer. It's like it's like ah, you know, like that. It's like what they sound like. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> what was that? That was supposed to be a horse. I, like I don't know. I was never. Was I was good. never a horse girl. Um, okay, so join us next month. Uh, we're going to do an episode on Tokyo Pet Shop of Horrors, which is a late 90s Japanese horror manga um, by writer and artist Matsuri Akino. Um, and we're going to have a special guest, Stitchomancery. Um, they are a fandom participant, commentator, and critic um, who recently has been writing a column on fandom for Team Vogue. Uh, so definitely tune in for that. Um, it's gonna be great. It's a little bit like um, Twilight Zone, sort of, or like an anthology. Uh, although there's like the stories string together, but it's interesting. It has an interesting structure to it. I've read a lot of Japanese manga horror, and it's not nearly as uh, graphic and bloody as I was expecting. It's um, it's more psychological it's more, horror, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's exactly. That's exactly right. Um, so I was like surprised by that. This is the first manga that I've ever read and I really enjoyed it. It definitely has a vibe of like, be careful what you wish for. I think. Uh, right. Some of yeah, the Yeah. That's why I mean Twilight Zone. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like the, you know, in each story, there's one client or customer who like gets a pet from the store and it is either like exactly what they need in kind of a fucked up way or exactly what they want which is the opposite of what they need um, right and it's just yeah, like yeah, it's a yeah. really interesting way of looking at like yeah desire and and wishes and like or or just like how fucked up the world is in general and like how to kind of solve that in a dark twisted magical way uh, okay, so don't forget to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts. It's been a while since we've had a haiku, but if you leave us a review, we will write a poem for you specifically and read it on our show. Uh, poetry, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, on Tumblr, you can find me at Feather Quill Pen, and you can find me and my epic works of Animorphs fan fiction on Archive of Our Own at Poetry. I was an early adopter with AO3. Oh yeah, six letter name. That's good on you. <laughs> poetry. No numbers. Just poetry. And I'm Anya and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely then L-I-T-E-R-L. Uh, I'm Alan. You can follow the show on Twitter at HGStoryCast and visit our website at HGStoryCast.com. If you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit hgstorycast.com contact or send an email to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. Storycast is a Hallowed Ground Media production and is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share alike license.